Okay, turn to uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 1. So, um, I've entitled this, The Mystery of Divine Relationship. So I've just started, well, just finished reading through Song of Solomon again. Um, Song of Solomon sort of has a special place in my heart, and I'll explain why in a little bit. So we're gonna, I'm going to give you some introductory stuff, then I'll tell you what my outline is, and we'll go through that. Um, but I want you to keep in your mind this idea of the mystery of divine relationship, because that's how I look at this book. Um, Song of Solomon. Now, there's several interpretations of, of what this book is portraying. I don't care if you like any of these or don't, doesn't matter to me. But there's basically like the literal interpretation that's Solomon and the Shulamite, that this actually took place as an actual song. There's a historical perspective, which means that historically it's referring to God and his relationship with Israel. Then there's a personal application, and that's Yeshua with his bride. That's us, me, and you uh, on a personal level. And then there's the conjugal, conjugal aspect of it really portrays the relationship of the husband and wife and the intimacy of that relationship. So when I read through this book, I, you know, some of these are floating through my mind at different times, but primarily for me, this is, and I, it's how I always read the Word of God, regardless of what the historical, the grammatical, the literal context is. To me, this book is always personal to me. So no matter what I'm reading, it's, I'm in there. Like if I'm going to read the book of Jonah. Yes, it's historical and it talks about all this cool stuff, but I kind of enter into the, I'm the character of Jonah. You know, what can I learn from looking at the book from that perspective, through his uh, gaze? So when I come to the Song of Solomon, I look at it like this, I'm in this book, and this is about my relationship with my Savior, or my relationship with my God, you know, interchangeable to me. But to me, I bring this down to a personal level. I want to see in this book how, with all the different applications, how I can enter into this make it personal, and have it change my life. That's just how I read the scriptures. So, those are the four different per, uh, interpretations. Literal, historical, personal, conjugal. And there may be others, but these are sort of the general ones. So, Solomon wrote about 1,005 uh, 1, songs, and we're told that in 1 Kings 4.32. And so he wrote a lot of songs, but in this one it starts out the Song of Songs which is Solomon's. And it seems to indicate, like, if you could pick any of his 1,005 songs, you know, the best of list number one, it would be this song, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So this is one of the 1,005 that he wrote. It's, it's basically introducing it by saying this is the best, you know. If there's a top five, this is, like, in the top five, number one. And so that tells you the importance of this, you know. And, and it's interesting because, you can, you know, I've preached a gazillions of sermons over the years. Some of them are just throwaways, but there's, you know, maybe a handful that you'd want to say, yeah, keep these. Well, you know, 1,005 songs that he wrote, well, this is a keeper. And so that's how we kind of need to enter into this. Um, now, for me, there's some theme passages, and, and, and what I mean by that things that really just kind of keep me on track as to how I want to look at what I'm looking at. And so those are uh, chapter 2, verse 16, where it says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. To me, this is the personal interaction between the two couples. So this is me entering in. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Love that. Just absolutely love that. Chapter 6 is another one. It's on the same theme, but I just want you to see it runs a little bit throughout. Chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among 
the lilies. So, you know, basically saying the same thing there. And then you have uh, chapter 7, verse 10. I, I love this one. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. I absolutely love that. Because it's, it's showing how she portrays the response of her lover. His desire is toward me. And for me personally, I need to know that. I need to be aware of that. I need to remind myself. Because to me, it's always, my relationship is more or less one-sided. It's me trying to reach up, get a hold of my Savior, get a hold of God, talk to Him. And, and it's, all, it's all my desire. And, and I tend to forget that his desire is towards me. He wants, and probably more so, but he wants as much of an interactive relationship as I do. So my desire is towards him, but his desire is towards me. And it's taken me a whole life of salvation, 40 plus years, to kind of wrap my head around the fact that he gets as much a kick out of spending time with me as I do with him. You know, he, he is involved in this. And this book, what's cool is, it's filled with emotion. It's not a dry thing. I mean, if you've read this, you know, it's passionate, it's emotional, it's intense. You know, our relationship with our Savior is not supposed to be this dry thing with this inanimate object. Right? It should be as real as husband and wife. All things being equal. So, that's working into this. Now, one of the hardest things to do, especially when you're starting out in chapter 1, and I'm going to give it to you. I don't know if you want to put notes in your Bible, read it, uh, write it down, or listen to it again. But it's sometimes hard determining who is speaking throughout this book, especially as we start in chapter 1. Now, I was helped years ago with this by, I think it was 1994, I bought the Wesley Study Bible because John Wesley impacted me, especially in college, because I did my term paper on the itinerant ministry of John Wesley. Amazing guy. Not necessarily I agree with all his theology, but to me, just an amazing guy. So, 1994, the Wesley Study Bible came out, so I got it and have it. It's the first one. Uh, and, it, but, and it was a new King James, because I didn't never made it with the King James. Now, but with, one of the good things about that is in the center column, they tell you whether it's masculine or feminine, the speaker, in the center column. Because they said they followed the Masoretic accents, or however, to determine male or female. And so what they've done is, when you get to the speaker, in the center column, it'll say, Feminine, Shulamite, Masculine, Solomon, which is a huge help, especially in the first few verses. So, verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. So, thy love there, it, that's masculine, all right? So, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy, masculine, thy love is better than wine. Uh, and then, let's see, verse 4, draw me, this verse here I, I won't get into, but draw me, we will run after thee. The thee is masculine. So, draw me, she's probably speaking, and then we, it might turn into the plural, the daughters of Jerusalem are kind of interjecting now into this. She's saying, draw me, and they're saying, hey, yeah, we want to come along too. We will run after me. The king hath brought me into his chamber. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. Now that thee is feminine. All right? Draw me, we will run after thee, him. The king brought me into his chamber. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. That's feminine. It's talking about her. Then we will remember thy love. That's masculine. It's him. We will remember thy love more than wine, the upright love thee. That's masculine. Now you see how confusing that is, right? Who's speaking? Who's 
talking about and how can we figure this out so for me that those just right there those first four verses it's huge because I need to know this stuff because it goes back and forth and you know unless you have some tools to go to look to you don't know who it is all right so I, I at least wanted to give that to you No, masculine. It is masculine? Yeah, masculine. So draw me, we will run after thee. That's masculine. The king hath brought me into his chamber. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. That's feminine. We will remember thy love. That's masculine more than wine. The upright love thee. That's masculine. So, you know. And that makes a big difference. So going throughout, especially, you know, if you have some sort of a study Bible or just maybe a regular Bible, it might tell you who's talking throughout. Very, very helpful. All right, I just wanted to give that. This is all kind of just leading into all of this. Now, my points are this. My introduction and relationship with this book. Number two, we're going to look at the passage, chapter one, not all of it. And then number three, you and your relationship with this book and Yeshua. That's where I want to go with this. Because this is a personal look uh, book. If you can keep the mindset that there's a husband and relationship narrative, relationship going on, if you can keep it that personal, then you can enter into this book and start to make personal application, which is where I want to end up. So I'm going to tell you how I got into this. I want to look at just a few things in this passage itself and then uh, conclude it with, you know, how you can make this live for yourself. Now, my introduction to and relationship with this book started at Bible college. Um, I was just doing what I've done since I've been saved. Started Genesis, read through, Genesis, read through, Genesis, read through, Genesis, read through. So, somewhere along the line, I hit upon the Song of Solomon. And I'm reading the Song of Solomon. And at that time, there weren't that many study Bibles out that I'm aware of. Basically, the Schofield Bible and the New Schofield Bible were it. At least those that were ones that we wanted to look to. There was like Dake's Annotated Bible, and, and then you had the Thompson, but that wasn't really a study Bible as far as notes. So they, that, that Bible, the New Schofield, wasn't much help by way of notes. So I thought, man, I need a commentary or something. And in the library, I can't remember, I don't think there was a whole lot, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to the bookstore on campus and see what I can find. So I get to the bookstore at campus, there's two. There's a smaller one, and then there's a thicker one. I forget who the thicker one was by, but I didn't have much money. <laughs> so, oh, I'll buy the small one. So the one I bought was this commentary that we're looking at by H.A. Ironside. Um, he lived from uh, 1876 to 1951, three years before I was born, he died. A very well-known preacher, though not to us. Interestingly, he was a Plymouth Brethren. And I think that may be part of why I got involved in this, because I had been looking into the Plymouth Brethren movement. Uh, was very uh, taken by the simplicity of that group. Met with the elders and went to their services. And, and I liked how the, their emphasis on the Word of God. And they weren't into the hype of Christian growth and all this stuff way back in 73 when I got saved. So George Mueller, if you know George Mueller, he was a Plymouth Brethren, Ironside Plymouth Brethren. Get the school, the fellow that they bring in, who ends up being the executive vice president, he hands out to Preacher Boys class this book, there's 900 plus in, in a Preacher Boys class, The Preacher and His Preaching by Alfred P. Gibbs. Well, I know who Alfred P. Gibbs is because I have the book, and I've looked into Plymouth Brethren. So I want to go talk to uh, the executive vice president, a president of our school, once he finds, and they only gives, he only gives, he told me, he said, I only give 15 minutes for these. Well, we talked probably 45 minutes close to an hour because he came from a Plymouth Brethren background. So that's all incidental, but that's part of the reason I was taken with this commentary and appreciate his perspective and where he's coming from. Now, Plymouth Brethren, they're, they're dispensational and all that sort of stuff, but they're solid scripturally. I'm getting all, way off on us. Interestingly, um, George Mueller did not believe in the pre-wrath, uh, pre-tribulation rapture of the church. He believed it was at least halfway through. And that was part of a reason why he had problems within his own movement because he was, he was rejected somewhat because he said, I don't see the rapture of the church taking place be before the seven-year tribulation. It's later. 
So stuff like that just endeared me to these people, although I was falling away from dispensationalism almost right away. Oh, okay, so, uh, let's see. So as I got into this commentary and I read it, the first commentary I ever read, it's not very long, I didn't read books, anything. I had never even read a book, I don't think, <laughs> until I went to college. Yeah, I mean, the closest I came to it was Catcher in the Rye in high school because we had to read that for a book report, and I just flew through that and looked at the pages new enough. But I, I'd never read a book, book, book. Whoa. I had never really read a book until we went to New Orleans with our pastor, Pastor Allen. He read all over the place, and so he had books. Now, that's where Mary have Coy and Luke. I'd never read, period, except the Bible. That's the only thing I read was the Bible. <laughs> When I got saved. And it was so, and, and the Bible I got was a new school that had the wide margins on it because I just liked it. It just seemed roomy. And I can remember laying in bed thinking, you know, this is so weird. I never had a desire to read anything. This, I'm still living at home as a kid, 1973, 1920. I'm thinking, wow, I'm reading the, my first book, basically, and it's the Bible. And it's always been that way. So I was encouraged by this commentary to pursue the personal and not just the intellectual aspects of my salvation relationship with Yeshua. I don't like just the academic, never have. Now here I find myself in Bible school, it's academic, it's all academic. I think I'm going to be going to this oasis of a Bible college and everybody's just going to be salivating for the word of God and the spiritual things and they're hungering after God. And it wasn't like that. <sighs> Messed me up. You know, it was intellectual, Greek and Hebrew and you know, learning the right things and saying the right things and looking the right way. And that's important, but if you don't have the underpinnings of a personal relationship, yeah, you're saved, but personal, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I just, that's, I'm not built that way. This book by Ironside um, Helped me to pursue the personal and not just the intellectual aspects of my salvation relationship with Yeshua. And that was huge then. Saved in 73, I'm in Bible school in 74. You know, I'm in the independent, fundamental, premillennial, pre-tribulational Baptist movement. I go to the, the, the most fundamental co Bible college in the college in the world at the time. And it's just so knowledge-based. You have your Schofield study Bible, learn what he says, that's all, you know, you're good to go. And I'm not, I, that, to me that sucks. I hate to say it that way. <laughs> it just sucks if that's all you have. I can't live that way. I have the knowledge, my wife is my knowledge. But unless it's personal and interactive and gets down where it's close... I don't want a marriage like that. And I don't want a relationship with my Savior that's like that. It has to be alive and living. So this commentary did that for me. And it was he. Now, I don't agree with everything he's saying, but, it, you know, because of his dispensational perspective. But, I, you know, I was able to put all that aside and pull the meat out. And it's like, wow. I want what Ironside is talking about. Now, so let's look at a little bit of this. So... You can follow up on the screen. Not, there's, there's a lot we're going to read, but not a lot. All right, so I'm gonna, and I'm going to jump for some of this. So it was interesting. He's saying here, this is like his introductions. Something like 100 years ago, this, this goes into the Bible translation thing, I think it's interesting. Something like 100 years ago, this guy by the last name of Ewald, E-W-A-L-D, the great German critic, who has been called the father of higher criticism, suggested that the story was something like this. Now, we're not going to read that. I just want you to, this guy, Ewald, he's a German, great German critic. A lot of higher criticisms comes out of Germany. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, we go over to visit my friend in Munster, Germany, last, whenever that was, a year ago this past summer. I get home. And find out, I guess if I have this right, the greatest depository of manuscripts, New Testament manuscripts in, in, in particular, are there in Munster. And where um, this, this Bible society thing with uh, the top dogs, it's all over there. So this higher criticism seems to have been born out of unsaved people in Germany. So then he goes on in the next paragraph, the view of things, that view that he talked about, I don't want to get into it. 
But here's the sad thing. That, that view of things has been accepted by a great many Bible students, and I have been a little surprised at times to hear some of my fundamental brethren set forth, apparently without realizing its source. Personally, I reject it. I do not think it at all likely that a man like Ewald, who had no real spiritual insight, ever understood this little book of communion. A man who could be called the father of higher criticism, who gave the start to the present modern trend of handling the Bible, Bible translation, refusing to recognize his true inspiration does not seem to me to be such and one as the Spirit of God would use to open up this little book to us. Amen! Amen! And we're afraid to say that. Listen, I don't care who anybody is. Westcott and Hort, who gave us the polluted stream of all the Bibles that we had, they were lost, ungodly men. Why are we going to use what they produced? And then you listen to these guys on YouTube and they say, well, it doesn't really matter. And, and that, I was told that in Bible school in my Bible, uh, New Testament Greek. Well, I said, what about the Catholics in this? And this guy's a cardinal and all this. Oh, doesn't, that doesn't matter. The, the, their knowledge in, in the language is sound. And I'm sitting there as a stupid person saying, no, no. Whatever you believe permeates whatever you do. If you're lost, you're coming at the scriptures from a lost perspective, and that's going to creep in on how you want to translate certain passages. So when the Revised Standard comes out, of which the English Standard Version is the next prodigy to Revised Standard Version, comes out and wants to change a virgin to a maiden. Oh, this is so bad, folks. Oh. Anyway. So I appreciate what he had to say. Then he goes on and talks a little bit more about why he rejects all this. And then he says, "Let now, now he's going to tell you his story, which whether this is true and how it actually is, because you can, if you get commentators or if you go on online there where you have all the 20 different commentators, everybody sees things differently throughout this book. It's, it's amazing. It really is. They think it's this, and then they'll lay it out this way. So, you're not going to get one solid thing that works for you from one source. But I like what Ironside did, and this is how I've been trying to get everybody that I've ministered to for all the umpteen years in the ministry I've been in it, I, I want us to get to what he says. And when I read this, I was so empowered by what he did to come up with his own understanding of this book, knowing there's a gazillion other ways to look at it, and he's right. I mean, so he says, let me give you another story. The one that came to me one day when I was alone on my knees. When's the last time you come to God? When's the last time, really? I. It's so easy to have your iPad right, right there. So I wonder what Barnes says. I wonder what this guy says. I wonder what this guy says. You know, before I had commentaries, and before I had an iPad, and before I had, you could, I was dependent upon just coming to God on my knees. The first message I ever preached, and you know, I was asked by my pastor to preach. I'd just been saved probably six months. I don't know anything from anything about anything. I don't even know where to, how, how do you begin? I had no idea. So I must have been reading through Second Chronicles or First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, if my people which are called by my name. Woo! I love that verse. I'm reading there. So I just went home, went to my bedroom upstairs, got down on my knees, opened up my Bible, and I just took that verse apart word by word. I meditated upon it. I don't know why. If. If my people, if, I'm thinking if, there should never be an if with God's people. Ever, never, ever should there be an if. And then I went through there. This is what Ironside does. So he said, I had to teach this little bit book and was a bit perplexed about it. I did not like the story of Ewald. And so I went to the one who wrote the book and asked him to tell me what was behind it. Oh, you say, did you know the author of the book? Yes, I have known him for a long time. At that time, I had known him about 30 years. Now it is 41 years. Well, you say, the book is rather a recent thing if you know the author. No, not at all. It is very, it's a very old book. But the author is the Ancient of Days, and I have known him ever since. In grace, he saved my soul. 
And so I took him at his word, reminded him of his promise that when the Holy Spirit came, he would take of the things of Christ and show them unto us. And I said, Blessed Lord, I'm all perplexed about this little book. By thy Spirit, show it to me so that I will really understand its meaning. I'm going to give you the story that it seemed he gave to me. You may not think I'm correct. Very well, you go to him and ask him about it. And if he tells you something different, come and tell me, and I'll be glad to correct my story if you can show me that I'm wrong. But I love that. You know, there's real freedom in preaching like that. You know, if you don't like what I have to say, don't get mad at me. Go figure it out for yourself. You know, that's basically what he's saying. So, so this is, now he's going to give a synopsis. This is what I thought I could see behind it all. Up there in the north country, in the mountain district of Ephraim, King Solomon had a vineyard. We are told that in the 11th verse of the last chapter. And he let it, or rent it, out to keepers, to an Ephraimite family. Apparently the uh, husband and father was dead. But there was a mother, and at least two brothers, two sons. We read, my mother's children were angry with me. In Hebrew, it is my mother's sons. There may have been more sons, but there were at least two. And then there were two little daughters, and I'm not really sure about this. Two sisters, a little one spoken of in the 8th chapter, which is interesting if you apply it that way when you get to that verse. We have a little sister. So, anyway... Anyway, so she was, a little un, she was a little undeveloped one. And then there was the older daughter, the Shulamite. It would seem as though this one was the ugly duckling, or the Cinderella of the family. Her brothers did not appreciate her and foisted hard tasks upon her, denying her the privileges that a growing girl might have expected in a Hebrew home. My mother's sons were angry with me. That makes me wonder whether they were not her half-brothers, if this were not a divided family. My brother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. They said to her, No, you can't loll around the house. You get out and get to work. Look after the vineyard. She was responsible to prune the vines and to set the traps for the little foxes that spoiled the vines. They also committed to her care the lambs and the kids of the flock. It was her responsibility to protect and find suitable pasture for them. She worked hard and was in the sun from early to late. Mine own vineyard have I not kept. She meant, while working so hard in the field, I have no opportunity to look after myself. What girl is there that does not value a few hours in front of the looking glass, the opportunity to fix her hair and to beautify herself in any lawful way? She had no opportunity to care for her own person, and so she says, my own vineyard have I not kept. I do not suppose she ever knew the use of cosmetics or any kind. And yet, as she looked out on the road, she would see the beautiful ladies of the court riding on their palfreys and in their palaquins. And as she got a glimpse of them, or as she bent over a woodland spring and saw her own reflection, she would say, I am sunburned, black, but comely. And I, and if only I had the opportunity, I could be as beautiful as the rest of them. That is all involved in that expression, mine own vineyard have I not kept. One day as she was caring for her flock, she looked up, and to her amazement there stood a tall and handsome stranger shepherd, one she had never seen before, gazing intently upon her, and she exclaimed, Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. And then she gives the explanation, My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. But he answers quietly, without an offensive forwardness, I was not thinking of you as swarthy and sunburnt and unpleasant to look upon. To my mind, you are altogether lovely. Behold, thou art fair, my love. There's no spot in thee. Of course, that went on a long way toward a friendship, and so little by little that friendship ripened into affection and affection into love. And finally, the shepherd had won the heart of the shepherdess. Then he went away, but before he went, he said, Someday I'm coming for you and I'm going to make you my bride. And she believed him. Probably no one else did. Her brothers did not believe him. The people in the country felt she was a poor, simple country maiden who had been deceived by this strange man. She had acquired of him where he fed his flock, but he put her off with an evasive answer, and yet she trusted him. He was gone a long time. Sometimes she dreamed of him and would exclaim, The voice of my beloved! Only to find that all was quiet and dark about her. But still she trusted him. 
One day there was a great cloud of dust on the road, and the country people ran to see what it meant. Here came a glorious cavalcade. There was the king's bodyguard and the king himself, and she stooped just opposite, or stopped, is it stopped or stooped? Stop. Stopped just opposite the vineyard. To the amazement of the shepherdess, the royal outriders came to her with the announcement, The king has sent us for you. For me, she asked, Yes, come. And in obedience she went. And when she looked into the face of the king, behold, the king was a shepherd who had won her heart. And she said, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. One great reason I think that this is a story of Canticle Song of Solomon is because all the way through this wondrous volume from Genesis to Revelation, we have the story. Uh, it's so emotional, I, I got to keep from crying. The, from Genesis to Revelation, we have the story of the shepherd who came from heaven's highest glory down into this dark world that he might woo and win a bride for himself. And then it went away. But he said, I come again and receive you unto myself. And so his church has waited long for him to come back. But someday he is coming to fulfill his word. And when he comes, the glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then a new song will sing, Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so I think that is the background of the expression of loving communion in this little book, The Song of Songs. You notice that very little reminds you of the Holy of Holies. It is the transcend, transcendent song. Uh, the Jews did not allow a young man to read the book until he was 30 years of, old, uh, of age, lest he might read into it more human voluptuousness and misuse in its beautiful praises. And so we may say it is only as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ that we can read this book understandingly and see in it the secret of the can I get an amen to that? Amen. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Now, I'm saying, folks, we have the same Holy Spirit he had, Ironside. We have the same Savior that he had, even the same book that he had. Doesn't your heart yearn to be able to get on your knees, come to the Scripture, pour your soul over a passage, a chapter, a verse, like, God, Open it up to me. Isn't that awesome? So that's why this, at that time in my life, 74-ish in Bible college, knowing nothing from anything, this book changed the course of my relational direction, relationship direction with my Savior. It changed. It was a game changer for me. I cannot tell you how much it changed me. And so... I've tried to live my Christian existence through the prism of how Ironside came away with his own thoughts on this wonderful book. Now, let's just get into a few things about the passage itself. Chapter 1. So let's just kind of read through the chapter, then I'm going to back up and give some highlights and move on. All right. So the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. <laughs> Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name, I love this, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love me. Draw me! And I, it probably stops there, there's a shift. We, draw me, or she, it could be still her saying, draw me! We will all run after you, you know, figure it out for yourself. But draw me, we will run after me. The king hath brought me into his chamber. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. I was thinking of you, Eric, <laughs> about the wine, you know. Um, and I like that if we're going to compare the exhilaration that we have with our Savior, I don't want to get off on this because I mean, we don't drink wine, I don't think we should, but I drink wine. There's just something about that experience, right? So anyway. But I thought it was interesting, you know, all the things that it could be compared to, you know, um, we will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee, verse 5. I am black, but comely. O ye daughters of Jerusalem, uh, as the tents of Kedar, let's see, sorry. I am black, but, but comely, O daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, 
as the curtains of Solomon. What's interesting, and we're not going to get into this tornado, remember this, because we watched that Captain Picard, uh, Star Trek episode, remember when Shocklock at the Battle of Indigo, you know, and they're trying to, Captain Picard's trying to communicate with him, but in their language, it's all by metaphor, you know, because you know the history. So, at the Battle of Shock Rock. That means some or, or event. So when they're talking, and that's how they talk. Well, the Bible does that a lot. Because that's what's going on right here. I am black, but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tent of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Right? That's, that's what's going on. And that's why sometimes we don't see the imagery and the beauty, because we're, we're so far at this point in time removed from our understanding and knowledge and personal experience with this stuff, we don't get it. But Basically, maybe what the idea is, you know, the tents were made out of, I think, a brownish skin. And so it was kind of plain on the inside, but you go into the tent, and then you have all the decorations. So she's saying, you know, I'm black on the outside. Get on the inside. That's where you find the real me. I'm black, but comely. What's the comparison? You see those tents out there? You look at them. They're pretty plain. Get inside. That's where you... Enter into the personality and the reality of the person who lives within that tent. So that's what she's saying. Verse 6, look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard have I not kept. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? If thou, now, if, thou, if thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tent. That may be him talking. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses and Pharaoh's uh, chariots. So he's speaking. You know, he's the beloved, she's the love. So now he's saying, hey, you know, you know what I want to tell you what I think of you, honey. Man, you are like a company of horses and Pharaoh's chariots. That doesn't go over so well with us, right? Oh, honey, Judy, you're like a company of horses and pharaohs. You know, that doesn't do it. But, but it did, you know, for them. So, um, ten. Like, I love this. I just love this. Now, as we continue on. Then it goes on. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels. Thy neck with chains of gold. We will make thee borders of gold. Uh... We will make thee, the thee is feminine there, and it may be the daughters of Jerusalem. We will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver. Then she goes on, while the king sits at his table, my spike nerd sendeth forth the smell thereof. You know, she's in his presence. She's enraptured by his presence. You know, those of us who are been married for a while, you remember those early days, right? You're in the presence of that one, and she just does something for you, or, or, or you do something for her. And I think what's going on here, she's getting a little excited. There's a little perspiration going on. And so while the king sits at his table, my spike nerd sends forth the smell thereof. I mean, you know, anyway, I'm giving you a little bit too much. Uh, a bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. And then go on and go on and go on, and we won't go any further. So, but anyway, it builds now into this intimate fellowship, relationship thing that is just so real. And the comments that they give back and forth to one another, it's just so beautiful. Um, so, ver so, where are we going with this? <laughs> i got to pull myself back. So, first off, the passage. I'm going to highlight on three things. Um, verse 2, kiss me. Verse 4, draw me. Verse 7, tell me. Because to me, that's the heart of what's going on here. So, first off, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore, do the virgins love thee. Love thee. I, I love this. Kiss me. She's, she wants that closeness, that intimacy. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. You know, if you just think about what you're reading and you envision that, you're kissing your husband, your wife, you know, it's, it's a drawing together. It's an intimate time. It's, it's a bonding. It's, it's, it's a wrapping of each other's arms around one another. It's, it's that moment which says, I am yours and yours are, and you are mine. And, 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 and lots of times what sparks what goes from there is the intimacy of the kiss. 
So she's saying, I want this relationship to grow deep and blossom as it can. So basically she's saying in verse 2, uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of the mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Um, basically she's saying he's a good lover. And then verse 2, the second part, his love affects her. And, and then it goes on, for thy love is better than wine. You know, possibly, as the way I'm looking at it, internally, like wine. You know, you, 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 you take wine into your system and internally it produces what it produces, right? I mean, that's the internal side of things. So, um, where am I here? So thy love is better than wine. I think that's the internal aspect. And then... The, the external aspect is he has outward appeal. Verse 3, because of the savor of thy good ointments, uh, thy name is as the ointment poured forth, therefore do the virgins love me. So this thing of kiss me starts it all off. And she said, man, he's a good lover. His love affects me internally and externally. Now, you just have to carry that metaphor into the relationship with God and with our Savior. I want it to be that real, that tangible, that intimate with my Savior. I can't live without it. I just cannot live without it. You know, if I had to go day after day, week after week, month after month without talking to Judy, I would just shrivel up and die. If I couldn't be close to her and get a kiss and a hug and, and sense that contact of love, I, I couldn't survive. And that's basically what she's saying. Man, it has to be close. All right? The second thing. Draw me, verses 4 through 6. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chamber. We will be glad and rejoice in thee, and we will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. I am black, but comely. O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon, look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. So, kiss me, draw me. Can you see it? The kiss brings with it the drawing in. Draw me. And I love this. Now, what is cool if you kind of want to take this into the salvation aspect thing of things, and what I'm going to say, most people are going to disagree with me. But she already, not about what I'm going to say about her, but how I'm going to apply it. She already has a desire within her for him. That's just the way it starts out. The song of songs was just sound. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. There's this desire that we're just smacked in the face with. Verse 2, that she's saying, this is what is in me for him. And I love that. So she already has a desire within her for him. Now, the reason I, I think most theologians and everybody else is going to disagree with this, and I don't personally care, because I know for me, and I've known one other person who was in my congregation, as far back as my earliest memories, probably going back to age five, for however, whatever, there was this thing in me for God. As, as inadequately as I knew anything about him, there was enough floating around in life and in environment and in school and, and family, um, you know, and watching the, Catholic, the good Catholics walk by every Sunday morning as they were going up to the church at the top of the street, and we ever, and I met, never my parents ever set foot in the congregational church that we went to. They drop us off, then my sister would drive, and we go sometimes to Sunday school, not that frequent. I told you before, I'd get up in the morning, try to be real quiet so nobody would wake up. And I tiptoe downstairs because I didn't want to go to Sunday school to church. But the problem was we had the big console TV in my parents' bedroom right there. But Davy and Goliath is on now. <laughs> so I turned it on. And those old two TVs, boosh, you know how the two would go, boosh. And I said, oh, I hope they didn't hear it. And he just called up. So I'd sit there and watch Davy and Goliath every Sunday. Then the stars would fall down. And that's probably a lot of where I got as flawed as it was, this thing in me for God. And then along, I mentioned before, Ranger Andy, every day after school, he'd sing, oh, you'll find it in the Bible, you'll find it in the Bible, you'll find it in the Bible. Well, you know, it's true. And he's probably another Catholic. But whatever thing I had in me 
It's always been there as far as I can remember. Now, I am not discounting, and we're going to look at some passages, because some people will say, no, no, you, he has to draw you. He has to give you that desire. You are born without that desire. And I'm not really going to argue with that. If he put it in there, great, he put it there. I just know I had it. How it got there, I don't know. So if you want to say, God put it there, great. All I'm saying from my perspective is, like she, there was this desire. It was in there. But she realizes that for it to get anywhere, he has to do something. Draw her, right? So let's turn to John chapter 6. We'll look at two passages in John, just to reinforce this thing of he has to do the drawing. You know, whether you agree with my thing, I always had it here. And, and I, was, I never talked about this because that was taboo until the lady in our congregation, um, I don't want to say her name now, but uh, she lived in the big brown house, the big board house thing. We got talking one day and she said, I've always had this, this drawing towards God. She said, as far back as I can remember, it's just always been in there. And I said, wow, I am so glad you told me. You know, now I can tell somebody and talk about this. But the truth of the matter is, unless God does the drawing, ain't much going to happen. All right, so John chapter 6, verse 44. Uh, 43, uh, Yeshua therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. All right? And then John chapter 12. I just pull these verses so that you can see where I am with all this. Because you get to the other side. You know, you basically have the Arminian perspective that, you know, you can get knowledge and, you know, you're depraved from your neck down, but from your head up, if you, if you learn things and read things, you can gather information to see that you're lost and, and, and bring yourself with, you know, I don't think uh, Wesley believed in this, and that's Arminian from Arminus. Um, that, and so there's that aspect. Then you had the Calvinistic aspect, which says man is totally depraved. Well, I agree with both of those. I don't know how to put that juxtaposition together. Um, but anyway, John chapter 12, verse 32 uh, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So I think it's really interesting because we enter into the story, bam, we're hit with this girl, this desire that's innate in her, but there's this thing in her that says, you need to draw me. I'm drawn to you, draw me. So... She already has a desire within her for him, but he must draw her. Now, what I think is really cool, verse 5, I am black but comely. I did some reading about all of this, but I did some reading on this, which I thought was interesting, and I didn't realize this, but maybe what she's saying is this. Um, she is marked by the stigma of a field laborer. She's not fair-skinned like the privileged. So she might have been out there working in the field. You know, she has to be out there. She's getting sunburnt. In these carriages drive by all these city ladies, these wealthy ladies, these higher ladies, and they're just all white because they don't spend time out in the field. That's, the, that's where the laborers go. That's the second class and third class people. They're out there, bent over all day, getting sunburned and black. We are creamly white. We aren't like them, and they aren't like us. So as she's considering this thing about being drawn, she says, oh, ah, I'm black. You know, please don't judge me by the outside. I am black but comely. There is a beauty about me. If you will take the time to get inside the tent and see what really dwells inside. And what spoke to me is, in a sense, she's comfortable with that, who she is. 
Because she knows what's inside. And she knows from this perspective what she has to offer him if she can just get him to see it. I know I'm drawing the analogy a little too far here, but just hang with me. And so, you know, I've, I've, oh, I've loved this. You know, because I, I can relate to this because all summer long, where some of my friends didn't have to work out in the fields, I'm in the field of my aunt's farm every summer from age 10 probably until I could finally get out of there and get a real job, 16, in the fields every summer, every summer, every summer. You know, and, but then there were those other kids, you know. So draw me. Kiss me, draw me. And then the last thing. Tell me, verse 7. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? I don't want to get into all what that means. But here she's saying, tell me. She wants to be close to him. She uh, wants to be exclusively his. She wants to dwell with him amongst his flock. So kiss me, let's get it started. Draw me, we need to come together. Now I'm telling you, I want to be with you. I want to be where you are. I want to be with others that are connected to you. Can you see this? This is just beautiful. That's why, you know, you're lost, you get drawn, you get saved. And then there should be this yearning to be with the people of God who have the same master <laughs> delivered from the same field of sin who have this hunger to get close to him. And that's what's supposed to happen in our fellowships. But that's not what happens, is it? It becomes strife and fights and disharmony and all this other Luke words that he would use right now. <laughs> and I'm just done with it. All. That's why if you read my Messianic hippie blog, I'm just done with it all. I don't care anymore. And if it only ends up being a handful of us that can agree on the basics and have a heart of fellowship for one another and genuinely love one another, though there are disagreements, I mean, there's folks that have left our congregation that I still love. But, there that was that one thing. And sad as it is, that's just the way it is, you know. But those that have left, many of them, if I had to die for them, I would. Because I believe, some of them anyway, are my brothers and sisters in the Lord. But for some reason... The bride of Christ has been divided since its inception. That's just reality. And that's why we should long for Him to come, our beloved to come. Clouds off in the distance. There's His coach. There it is. He's coming to get us. That's what I'm living for. That's what I'm living for. For him to come and collect his divided bride. For him to unite Ephraim with Judah. I want to dwell in his presence with his people. I'm sick of division. I'm sick of it. And so at this stage in my life, even so, come quickly, Yeshua. Just come. All I want is to be with you. To be in your presence where everything will be right and as it should be. And that's what she's longing for. Tell me, O oh, whom thou my soul loveth, where you feed, where you make your flock rest at noon, so that I can go there and be there and dwell there and remain there. And then the rest of the book is this back and forth of, you're lovely, I'm lovely, uh, you're lovely, you're, no, no, you're lovely, no, no, you're lovely. Yeah, you're lovely like this, but yes, you're lovely like this. And it goes back and forth. But the beauty is, he is altogether lovely, but he sees us as lovely. Right? So, 
Okay, I'm, I'm about here to close. All right, so. Now, the last thing. You and your relationship with this, with this book in Yeshua. So, don't make it mine. I, I, this is a whole long thing I'm trying to put together about my journey of why this book was so important and how I view my relationship with my Savior. It does you no good to know about me and how I was transformed and have maintained my fellowship and he's maintained his fellowship if I can't get you excited to do it on your own. So, this is now about you and your relationship with your Savior. Now, there, there's this aspect in here that I'm not going to hit a whole lot of, but, but, but we have to see. This thing of dove's eyes. You know, because you read along, if you, if you stop and think, you, you know, just some of the things it says, a bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved well uh, unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breast. A bundle of myrrh. You know, and just the things they flow back, throw, you, know, you are, you know, you're this, this, and you're this, and, you know, so, and in the midst of this is one of these, is uh, uh, this thing of dove eyes, which, dove eyes, 115, behold, thou art fair, my love, behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes, <laughs> doesn't do a thing for me, sorry. <laughs> but then notice if you get to, uh, where are my notes, I'm losing my notes here. Chapter 5, chapter 5 and verse 12. It gets reciprocated. Um, so where was I? One whatever I said. Uh, 115, behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. And then you get to 512. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. So, no, you have dove eyes. No, you have dove eyes. No, you have dove eyes. You have dove eyes. I, I just love this. So, but what does that mean? So, not you may know this stuff already. I don't know this stuff. So I went researching this thing about dove's eyes. So read a few different things. I'm going to give you one that I think probably speaks well to it. Dove, doves have binocular vision or fixed field vision. Now, I don't know what binocular means, other than I think of binoculars. Two things into one, and you see one thing, right? All right, so they does have binocular vision or fixed field vision. They can only focus on one thing at a time. Once a dove sees something or someone who captures its attention, its eyes are trained on that object. It is un distracted from this focal point. So they basically only have eyes for one another. And you've seen doves. It's been a long time since I've seen them. But if you've seen doves sometimes sitting on, on the uh, telephone wires, they're, they're paired. Lots of times they're paired. And once, once they're mated, they're mated for life. And they have only eyes for one another. And, and I think that's cool, you know. The, and, and then if you go online and you look at dove's eyes, some of them are just, there's many different, you know, how they look, but they're, they're incredible. And interesting, I can remember as a kid, uh, in my bedroom window, I could look over, over beyond into the neighbors. And every once in a while, I hear this coo, coo, coo. And, and I didn't know what in the world that thing was. And the kid that lived in that room, he always had a shady, we kind of viewed him as, you know, he's kind of that crazy person, maybe something's going on over there. So one day I finally was brave enough to kind of walk over there, and there's this, I guess it was a dove sitting up there. And that has always stuck with me, that plaint of coo, coo. And I guess that's how they call their mate or somebody. And I'm no expert on this, so if I'm wrong, just don't get mad at me. But this thing of being undistracted from that focal point. They only have eyes for each other. And that's what it's saying. You have dove eyes. Well, you have dove eyes. Basically, they're saying we only have eyes for each other. To me, that encapsulates the essence of what I'm trying to say. Um, I want myself and I want us to get fixated on our Savior and try to get all the distractions that are all around us in life and the world that we bring into our life that are us to just get it 
away. Push it. So that all these other things that we see and that grab a hold of our life and that are so, we're so involved in and, and have such a hold in our in place in our life that we start just, no, no, I have dove eyes. I, 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 I don't want to be distracted. I want to be fixated on my Savior. You know, looking unto Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith. Colossians 3, set your affection on things above. Interestingly, in Tares Among the Weed, if you guys watched it, in relation to Tyndale, it was said that he was singularly, I can't say these words, singularly addicted to the scriptures. Tyndale. That, that just, wow! Now, I don't know what to do with that. But he was so focused on his task of what he was going to do, he was singularly addicted to the scriptures. Don't you want at least a few droppings of what that means in your life? I do. Uh, it was said of Jonathan Edwards that he had a single-minded preoccupation with God. Jonathan Edwards, the guy that God used to bring revival to this pitifully dark heathen, pagan, New England. Imagine if he came back now. But he, it was said of him that he had a, he was a single-minded preoccupation with God. It said that he was a God besotted, B-E-S-O-T-T-E-D, a God besotted man. I think it means if you look at him, you see God all over him. Ah! <laughs> <coughs> I'm not in a league of these people, not even anywhere close. But that's why God gives us books like the Song of Solomon to just wake us up from our sleep, wake us up from our lethargy, to get our eyes off of everything else, to get us to say, no, we have dove eyes. Why do we keep getting distracted? Why do we have other lovers, other things wooing us? Why do we get so... Enraptured by other loves. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, uh, the lust, all that is in the world, how, I can't even do it right now. All that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of the life. It's not in the Father, but it's in the world, and the world passes away. All these things we lust after, we just give them good names, hobbies. <laughs> yeah. Right? I do it. My kids know me, right? I still do it to this day. But, at least I'm still fighting the fight. Losing some. But I'm still fighting the fight. As I progress to where that desire as a little five-year-old, kiss me, to coming to, you know, 17, 16, 17, 18, 19, Draw me to now. I'm in the tell me stage. Where are you? I want to find you. And some of that is just years of salvation, but it's also years of human growth. <clears throat> the song, I, I got thinking about it. Um, where, where'd my notes go? We don't have to turn to it, but it just this came to my mind. This, just this one stanza Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, we've sang so many hymns over the year that we might as well just write BS right across them <laughs> for us personally. Because we sing them, but not, we're not doing anything about it. You know, we... Beautiful choir, beautiful harmony, beautiful instruments. Okay, this is what I would do because, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's why I can't throw out hymns in light of, you know, in exchange for all this pathetic, nothing worship music. Can't do it, you know. That's why we brought in a few hymns and trying to get this book that aired. Gave us if I can never get the music director working on more of them. I've been plotting them, Eric. I've been giving them songs that just ain't going nowhere. But this stuff is good stuff. 
So you, you, you start with the kiss me stage, to the draw me stage, to the tell me stage. To where you say, you have dove's eyes. You know, and I think that also means proximity, right? You know, you got to see the color of the eyes. You got to get close. I don't want to stop because I love this book. I love the message. And I want others to love it and to enter into this that is in this book. First, you have to be saved. And then, since you're saved, you have the Word of God, the Holy Spirit within you, the Savior living within you. You've got all the tools there. He's given us everything that we need for godliness, we're told by Peter, to develop this relationship. You know, the hard part is after the honeymoon, right? Then it's just life. So many of us are past the honeymoon of our Christian salvation, however you want to do it, experience. You know, we were saved a long time ago. I can remember when I first got saved, it was like, wow. You know, I can remember driving in my car for the first time, you know, I'm six, what was I, 19. I couldn't have told you the last time I had looked up to the sky. Because I'm driving thinking, wow, I can't even remember the last time I looked at the sky. You know, just my whole outlook on stuff changed. And then, you know, I'm still stupid enough to believe, well, I can go to church and we have sweet fellowship. And then I found out those people were horrible people. <laughs> oh, the bickering and the fighting and the things that they said about the pastor was just horrible. And I'm thinking, I, what have I signed on for? I'm going to go back to my hippie friends. We were better than this. <laughs> and that's what I thought. But I knew he was altogether lovely. I knew I had been saved. And they're going to go forward. So, I guess that's it. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this book. and Just how you use this, this man, you know, this Christian man, which we in the Messianic movement poo-poo these Christian guys. And I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah, they don't have it right. But they had a lot that we don't have. And I thank you to this day for this little commentary by Ironside, how it changed my life so many years ago and still is to this day. And I want what he talks about, the essence of it, to grab a hold of our hearts. I want this book, the essence of it, to grab a hold of our heart. Not just a song, a psalm, but the whole book. Help us to have uh, a fixed gaze. In Yeshua's name, amen.